rustling papers. Weird. But I like the name Passing Wind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Welcome to the edge of nowhere. and welcome to the Monster Lore Tour Paranormal Deep Dives from the Edge of Nowhere podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Carr, here along with my co-host in the Tweedledee to my Tweedledum, Mr. Matt Ozero, a.k.a. The Moz. How are we doing today, Moz? No complaints. All right. Just want to drop a little Alice in Wonderland reference there because we referenced it in part one. A little bit of continuity the, uh, for you. In the getting bigger, getting smaller. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We were talking about him growing and shrinking. It wasn't the... Uh, uh, Humpty Dumpty thing that was different, right? Oh yeah, Humpty. Yeah. yeah. Well, we do have a lot of important themes here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tough to keep track. Uh, but anywho, let's start off with a little bit of old business. I do just have one note on that. In episode seven, we uh, kind of joke about eight and a third minutes. That's a reference oh, to a yeah. bet we made in the side trail for episode six. And also in episode six, we use the term getting Heideggered, which yeah. is uh, kind of our own little lingo. Mm-hmm. Uh, we explain what that means in the side trail of episode six as well. It's kind of an important side trail as far as that goes. So if you want to be in on all the inside lingo, inside jokes that we're dropping like that, you really should go check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash monster lore tour. And for as little as five bucks a month, you can join up. You can get in on all that bonus content, pre-release episodes. And we added some uh, cool little bonus things, little merch and stuff for the different tiers on our Patreon. So Frank see which merch. Yeah, there you go. See which one fits you. Um, once we get a decent number of people in there, we'll make our first round of T-shirts. And if you get a high enough level, you can get a free one. Could that be our mall, Franken merch? Franken merch. That's pretty like good. It. I like it. Uh, but anywho, that is all I think we have for old business, right? Nice. So let's pass it over to Moz for part two of this shapeshifter saga. Yeah, for prerequisites, please go back, listen to part one. You'll be glad you did. For those who want to forge ahead, I just want to summarize real quick. Uh, We kind of read at the end of the last chapter Nick Redfern's account of the Newgate prison, which turned out to be this spectral black hound that came alive in the middle of a 1500s hellish London prison prison and ate like 12 people or yeah, killed that, them. That's creepy stuff right there. And what I did is looked up the original source, which is Samuel Rowland's Black Dog of Newgate, and found that the the reason behind this is that they had eaten, the basically the cannibalistic prisoners had eaten a Scholler, S-C-H-O-L-L-E-R, right, which right. is a conjurer or a witch or a or shaman. Shaman, if you will. If you will. So 
I was kind of looking for that and I kind of found it, which is just one of those, you know, weird research moments in sports. And back to side trails for a minute and to the Patreon is also another weirder thing I s- sort of solved from that same time period. <laughs> if you want to check it out. Okay. Only, at, you know, 1500s. You That's come, the last side trail episode, eight side trail. There you go. L- late 1500s, I'm solving multiple mysteries, you know. Actually, it's just, you know, this one, I don't know if it's really solving, but it's really weird. So, solving 500-year-old mysteries, yeah, that's pretty good. That's, you know, that's what I do with my free time. <laughs> <laughs> that's What do you do in your spare time? That's, I solve 500-year-old mysteries. That's what I do. But I do want to start off with Hancock again, because today what I'm really trying to do is kind of give my thesis for the the shaman, you know, basically the shapeshifter shaman complex. Why I think a lot of what we're talking about is the shamanic energies or the shamanic dynamic we keep coming across. And this is the best quote that kind of sums that up. It's from Graham Hancock's Supernatural. If we scratch the surface of any religion deeply enough, we'll sooner or later come to the shamanism and the distinctive supernatural realms and phenomenon that shamans everywhere encounter in their visions. Global, yeah, it really is. Like when you break everything down to the base level, you you can kind of find all those elements in everything. Yep, and that's you know religions and philosophies and all kinds of stuff. There's more things in heaven and earth, Jeremy. Yeah, but one one thing I'm also trying to do is uh, trying to get these things into buckets. So we're going to kind of at the end we're going to have a you know pop quiz and we're going to kind of try to figure out how to get things into where they belong as far as my breakdown of shaman, shapeshifters, monsters, and beyond. Cool, all right. Uh, but I also wanted, I came across something since I did my roll call that I just kind of had to add from last time I went through my, my little shapeshifter roll call. But yeah. I, I came across the Lidurk, L-I-D-E-R-C. It's a Hungarian demon who has one goose leg and foot that he has to hide in his trouser leg when he's seducing women. <laughs> <laughs> like for his actual foot. Yeah, and like it's a goose leg and foot. But we talked about that, you know, Rosemary Ellen Guiley talks about hooves or hairy feet. There's the wooden leg one we we talked about last time. Yeah, and everything I'll, has this one off anatomical feature. Yeah, and a lot of it is one leg. Like some of them only had one leg to begin with. Some right. of them had one leg that looks weird, or right. their legs are on backwards. Or, yeah. But from Bolivia to Hungary to Australia, it's just it's odd that these themes keep popping up yeah, just everywhere and speaking of which woody woodpecker oh yeah <laughs> oh, no <laughs> wait but you like this you like the segue from uh, i thought we got far enough in you wouldn't do that the anymore. last one came from a demonology <laughs> grimoire and i shifted seamlessly to woody woodpecker but okay. the bat was his arch nemesis and the bat is has yellow eyes so oh, we had I that, remember the bat episode yeah yeah we That's had, a good one. Well, we had the red eyes versus the yellow, so I wanted to kind of add this as another score for yellow. Those are two most common shapeshifter eye colors. Right. The bat has elongated fingers and claws, and it has missing anatomy. There's, If you look at this, back at this episode, they never draw a nose on this thing. Like it so doesn't even no have nostrils. It does not have a nose. So huh. kind of fits the, the bill. Yeah. I'm just saying. A little elongation, dysmorphia, glowing that, eyes. That is true. That is, that is. That's a good point. Okay, um, <laughs> good. It's a point. It's a point. But it, it's it's nowhere the wild things are. But you do have a point. <laughs> From an etymology standpoint, we have Samhains, which is believed to be the root word for shamans. From the northern Asiatic region of the Altai Mountains of Russia and the Tungus region, that's where shaman comes from. 
Saman, though, the root word, is also translated as to burn up or set on fire. And the reason I say this Mm. is because if you remember the first piece of anything that came on our podcast ever, what you put in What Are Monsters, what you threw at the first quote. Oh, yeah. It's uh, it's actually Alex Bone saying, the, right. the first thing we should talk about <laughs> is all the people we've set on fire or some such thing. Right, and I don't believe in coincidences. So normally what happens is you we do an episode and you take out a funny piece and throw it in the beginning. Our first episode, you never did that. So you actually had to take something out of the Bone later, interview yeah. and stick it forward back right. in time. Right, playing with the timeline again. Our first announcement to the world is Alex Bone saying let's talk about <laughs> so, so i nailed it you nailed saying. it in episode nine i learned that i started this podcast exactly right yeah because there is so, but go ahead you got something on your mind yeah here. i mean fire just keeps coming up because in part one we were talking about some of them are like carrying around balls of fire they turn into ball, you know, some of them turn, turn into, into balls right. of fire there's like this fire theme running through everything it's right kind of promethean to me is is like what why is fire so important in the the shaman world do you know well the promethean thing is more like the trickster thing which yes is also the monster thing and they seem to be giving something from the gods to us so there's that piece of it so there's a connection there the sister side has this whole ball of fire spook light swamp gas element to things that we're seeing but i think it's more about uh you know eliade's ecstatic stuff where we're talking about like Cowan's book fire in the head shamanism is kind of uh it's kind of this ecstatic higher frequency you know these people are kind of burning with energy okay and there's also some of them it's more of a ritual fire mastery piece to shamanism like the winton and uh california and some in australia i think there's there's a similar thing where there's a similar fire theme related to shamanism and I thought it was really odd that you went back and picked that quote that, that to is start so randomly. It's, al- it's almost randomly. Like, it's almost like the shaman has you know that power over and just like the ambient energy of the world or the universe or whatever it may be, and it manifests like easily as fire, maybe because like that's the ultimate energy for us, really. You know, humans and fire. That's yeah, it's elemental. It's elemental force. Yeah. Wind, fire, weather. They do. Oh, seem there you to go. Have... I guess that's the easy way to say what yeah. I'm trying to say is that they they control the elements, right? And fire is one of those elements. And fire is one of them. It seems to be one that's really deeply connected to shamanism, right, for sure. Right. But I wanted to kind of go over the kind of the basics of shamanism. Then I really want to go into my theory of how it ties in the monsters. So we are going to get to monsters. Do okay, not cool. fear. But I do want you to read the first one. It's kind of a shamanism. 101 piece from Christina Pratt, uh, her Encyclopedia of Shamanism. Okay. The origins of shamanism exist in an extremely wide distribution from Siberia to North America, South America, Australia, Asia, and Africa, and show remarkable similarities between cultures where there does not appear to be any direct human link. Scholars have struggled to account for these characteristics with the history of human migration and diffusion, the natural spread of linguistic or cultural elements from one area, tribe, or people to others through contact, from a common ancestor. 
For migration alone to explain shamanism, the diffusion of these skills would have had to begin at least 20,000 years ago. Within such a long period of time, language, social structure, and political regimes vary to significant degrees. Shamanic practices have varied much less than these other aspects of human culture over the same time period. It is difficult to explain why. Thank you. And, and I think this, you know, like a lot of people talk about diffusion as just this, there were a lot more connections and, and civilizations had a lot more interactions than we thought. And Graham Hancock is one of those proponents of this missing chapter of this connectedness. Yeah, I, I believe that too. Like it's always been a world culture, you know. No, I believe that, but I also don't believe that this, this explains shamanism. Like every little little pocket jungle shaman seems to match right, someone right. else. And I think that seems to be bubbling up more naturally through through the element Gedanken of the archetypes and you know our psyche as humans more than just this learning from other cultures thing that is right. also going on. So it's like, what what's going on? Well, it yeah, seems like both. The fact that it really does go back that far, like we, you can track it back a good 20,000 years. I mean, it's in the beginning of everything, you find signs of this. Yep. And it says how, you know, I, I think the difference, what they're talking about there is like human culture, the, the language and social structure and politics and whatnot they were talking about, that changes really fast. Like human culture changes really fast, but that just kind of, makes me think that the shamanism is rooted in more of a cosmic thing rather than a right. human thing. Right. And that never really changes, you know, the structure of the universe, the rules of the universe that control that force that they've learned to tap into doesn't really ever change. Yeah. And that goes to the end of Carl Jung to a schizoid layer where he's talking about the real archaic parts of the human consciousness and why they're the same. And, and really, it's because a lot of these folks are left alone in the jungle of the tundra, and they just kind of, it's a meditative thing. These these elements seem to rebubble up, resurface. And it's the mind state. It's, the mind state. Yeah. I also have, you know, have some interesting pieces before we start, just some other things that I found recently. Uh, Columbia, Amazon side of the world, there's the Mohan, Muon, or Moan, M-O-H-A-N, uh, which is the term for all these variety of jungle monsters. That's what they call the monsters, the Mohan. What else do you think they call the Mohan in these air, in these regions? Ooh, what else? Shaman. It's a shaman, oh, right? Monster Mohan and shaman. equals shaman. So it's funny how that happened. I mean, it's not ha-ha funny. <laughs> but so it's, <laughs> shaman and monster are the same word with them. Yeah, and here's another one from Chile, half fox, half snake, the Negruvilu, N-G-U-R-U-V-I-L-U, drowns people by creating a whirlpool, and you need a shaman to kind of ward them off and make the, that part of the river safe. And again, you've got this dynamic. Go ahead. A whirlpool, that's very reminiscent of a jinn, right? Because they're... Re they're the whirlwind. Yeah, Some like of the dust devil whirlwind. Kind of yeah, you see this, this, and drowning is a really common thing with the, even when we get up north to the Kushtika and whatnot. Yeah, but the, the, whir the whirlpool thing makes me think of the jinn's dust devil in the desert. Like it's a, yeah. wa like it's a water jinn. Yes. Yeah. And, and again, those elemental forces of the sprites and the, and the pixies and the nixies and right, the water right. creatures. Um, same idea. 
But there's this dynamic also the good shaman, bad shaman. You have to call the good shaman to get well, rid the, of this area. The Jedi shaman and the Sister. Right. We gotta use the right terminology. Yeah, because the light's for dark. correcting me on the that. Light Doesn't dark. make sense. Doesn't yeah. make sense. But there's bad shaman monsters, there's good ones you have to hire to fight. It's kind of the oldest but you know, they say the oldest business is is the brothel. I honestly think it's hiring a shaman to to fight a shaman. <laughs> that might be a lot older. Well, yeah, hiring I mean, that is like hiring the medicine man, hiring the doctor, hiring, yeah. you know, the guru to fix, you know, someone who knows the medicine knows how to fix your problems. That probably, I mean, that would be the oldest thing. Yeah. Right? But it is the brother and the brother-in-law, just like every other thing. It's, 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 it's a scam sometimes. <laughs> oh, sure. I mean, there's always people in every industry trying to pull one this. over. I can do this. But here, here's an example I found from Jeffrey Vodala from Yale. Basically, he's... He studied three very far apart areas and regions, and he came to this conclusion. The shamans I met had been from cultures separated by thousands of years of human history, shackled and oppressed by colonial empires, and shaped and transformed by the inroads of the modern world. Despite the differential impacts of their societies and religions, all three shamans, three shamans that Vidal personally kind of observed and studied, all three of them, believed in power and validity of an extremely similar set of ritual practices that defined shamanism in contrast to other forms of religious beliefs. So there was this distinct quality of shaman, different, you know, separated by thousands of miles, separated by tens of thousands, whatever, years and time, you know. Right. Wherever you find them, there's these similarities that bubble up that are hard to explain through it, diffusion. It doesn't gain that variation you get with basically all religions and philosophies a little bit different you get from country to country and region to region and whatnot church to church even or right mosque to mosque or what you know go throughout the list and mm -hmm. you know you'll find that the variations the different approaches and whatnot so yeah it's interesting that twenty thousand years the shamanism like barely changed at all from place to place even time to time well the staddle like we said last time the staddle cave and the uh however you say that i'm gonna some one day i'm gonna have to learn how to say that but basically those earliest cave paintings could be even forty thousand years old right and right that's what's and coming pe down people with animal heads in there and stuff right and we don't know that's the oldest I mean, we find, you know. It's just the just oldest we have the found. The oldest we have found. Uh, but there's also similarities, on not just on the shaman side, how positive, you know, like they, they have the same rituals and how they help people. The Sithers have these commonalities. And you know, like you said, the ball of fire being one of them. Vampirism and ball of fire seem to be very common tropes on the negative side right. and, and illness. Well, it makes sense because fire is a destructive element. So the the bad side the evil side i i would imagine would use a lot of fire because they, right. they're more the destructive side right yes yeah whereas the good side you'll probably see more air and water earth things like that yeah more closely you know wiccan or or elemental like you said it's just kind of a, a nature more of a nature worship here's another we talked about this so i just want to kind of hit it home a little bit tom cowan fire in the head he finds some other evidence as to them being stronger, shamans in general being stronger in the past. The literal physical transformation of the shaman is mentioned frequently in stories of past shamans. The power and skill necessary are rare today, though shape-shifting does occur for all shamans while they are in journeying trance states. Some past shamans were capable of shape-shifting in the presence of spectators, while others could only perform this act of power alone. 
So, That's interesting. Right. So that in the old days, you could actually see the transformation. Again, that reminds me, of course, of you tell me where there's one story we did talk about where there was a full transformation oh, from bones interview bones there. interview that was something that happened in window the, rock arizona in the yeah. 60s yeah. Uh, but we don't hear those very often which is of course why most of us have a hard time wrapping our head around a physical transformation and the, and they also if it's true that they're losing their powers it's not going to happen as frequently and it's interesting also like I, i'm wondering why some who can do the transformation can't do it when people are watching. Is that like a power level thing? They're just not that good at. Or I don't understand why people watch. They might make not a be physically trans. I mean, they said he's Cowan says it happens in shape shifting happens in every transitional state. Like every journey, Vision Quest has the shape shifting component. But yes, I don't think there's much going on as far as what other people might see. You know, but again, there's that believability of the tribe, and they're more likely to buy into what's happening, see the energy right. trends, and then kind of interpret it differently and see what's happening. I, I came across this old account where there's actually uh, a colonial guy is standing there, and everyone around, like the shaman's trying to just like, you know, now I'm going to put the evil eye hex on you, dude. And he, he remained calm, but everybody around him got very upset, and they all kind of get into this one mode where they were tapping with this le left hand on their, <laughs> and they were just kind of like gearing up towards it. And if it was someone that in their in their tribe that this was happening to, they would have just been like the kids with the Ouija board that all got sent to the hospital because, you know, they, they freaked out and right. they, they had this fear contagion thing. It doesn't necessarily work when you don't believe. However... We don't necessarily, we didn't come to the Southwest believing some of these tropes, and yet our friends have had these encounters. So I've had some of my own. Right, and that's what I'm saying. I don't understand. I don't under. We're getting there. We're going to understand. That's why we're doing this. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I do have, I want to shift a little bit to another reading coming up for you, and it's, a, it's more kind of a transition to, I think, a key component of this whole piece. It's the totem piece. Um, so we have this from Michael Horner, who uh, is going to talk a little bit about, you know, all these, uh, the, you know, the helping spirits. Okay. The helping spirits are the shaman's true teachers. Most teach while the shaman is in an altered state, either dreaming or journeying. More experienced shamans may also receive teaching from helping spirits in ordinary reality. All helping spirits teach the shaman how to use their power, gifts, and specific skills, e.g. the knowledge of the plants and how to use them as medicines, the skill of the rhinoceros to heal sexuality, the tiger to extract malevolent energy, the snake to shed the past in one piece, etc. The helping spirits bring the novice into the shamanic work, teach skills through experiences in ordinary reality, and create the initiation experiences necessary for the initiate to emerge from the ordeal, a shaman. Teacher often refers to helping spirits in human form, e.g. gods, goddesses, angels, ancestors, etc. However, since all helping spirits teach, and all are capable of shape-shifting between human and animal forms, this distinction is unnecessary. And that was from The Way of the Shaman, Michael Horner. Thanks for reading. And again, you know, I know a lot of folks may know this, but the 
the prevalence of all this throughout the world as far as having these helper spirits and what they look like and where those energies come from is so similar. Cool. Yeah, and, and putting it that way, that they can take any form they really want, you know, it, they there can go. Like right. they just read, <laughs> you know, they figure out what you believe in and they appear in that right. form so that they can have the proper effect on you. Sadly, and I say sadly, that that does seem to be what maybe some of these accounts are, are what we're talking about here. Even, yeah. you know, according to Eliade, Murchie Eliade, the Yakut shaman have the same distinction between the animal spirit or familiar, and it's called the Aikala, a mythical animal helper. It's the Yex to the Tlingit, which is my favorite one. A similar breakdown shows up everywhere. That's true. Where you know where we find shamanism, we find these yaks and eikolas and familiars. Right, right. Um, but then there's an Iliadic quote: the imagot or tutelary spirit is a completely different being. Usually, it is the soul of a dead shaman or a minor celestial spirit. The Yakut shaman, the Tisplit, is the name of the shaman. Told Servisky, a shaman sees and hears only through his imagot. I see and hear over a distance of three nozlet, but there are some who see and hear much farther. How long is a Nozlik? I knew you were going to ask that. I have no idea. <laughs> I actually I actually tried to, I, it's highlighted. I can show you. I, did, I could never find it. You couldn't even I, find the definition I, it, of it? It's kind of irrelevant. Yeah. But basically they're saying they can see further. Better ones can see further. And it's a commonality of shamans that they know, it's almost the Merlins where they're telling, the they go to the king and say, yes, you know, the forces are moving to the east. A shadow moves to the east. The question know. is, are they seeing it like astral projectily or are they seeing it through the eyes of a yak or a familiar? Right, and we're going to get to that. And that's actually part of where how I'm going to break down things into buckets for shapeshifters. And then oh, we're going to cool, talk okay. about who fits into what bucket. I got some great insights from uh, this yak acquisitional process from this book, uh, Demons of the Inner World by Alfred Reby. Is one you dropped off for me, by the way. Is a, you know That was really a, a great book. There's a chapter on shamanism, and he reviews Nud Rasmussen's fieldwork, which is very popular from back in the day. Arnakok is the shaman from the Netzalik and other Inuit tribes. But it was kind of mind-blowing because basically he talks about how this one shaman deals with all these elemental, demonic, or animal spirits around Dodge. You know, he just kind of this, he, in one story, the shaman is fishing, and something comes out of the ice, a water elemental, and he calls it compressed ice is what he calls it. Compressed ice. I know there's some oddities. Like if you see the pictures he drew, it's very Rorschachian. I wonder if it um, was really blue, like a glacier without like the really packed ice with no air and it turns blue. Yeah, there's only so many colors out there between the white, the blue, and the grays, you know. Yeah. But they're alone. He's out there fishing. He comes across this thing and he's like, let's see what this is about. And that becomes one of his helper spirits. They make an agreement. And this becomes one of his yeks or his eikolas. Nice. You got a water elemental. You got a water elemental one day. But another thing shows up like a couple pages later, and he's like dropping his fishing pole and running back to his house, like like getting out of there because it scared the heck out of him. I'm not ready to, um, like that's going to be the alpha basically. That's a monster. I'm not ready to. To deal with that. He, he's not powerful enough yet to handle it. Right. And what Reby says, and this is, again, he's a Neo-Jungian, tell you what he's, so he's a depth psychologist. But he, He's a Neo-Jungian? He's say? a Neo-Jungian. No. Oh, a Neo-Jungian. <laughs> ne- okay. <laughs> Neo-Jungian. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a Neo-Jungian myself. <laughs> I'm a Bob Dylan, so that was. Oh, nice, you know. nice. <laughs> that's, that's related. That's it's a, it is. It's a related field. Certainly. 
So uh, this is from uh, Demons of the Inner World, Alfred Reby. As soon as consciousness appears, the harmony of the unconscious psyche is distributed and complexes develop. These are the intermediate produce, still partially bound to the unconscious and the dialectical confrontation with consciousness. In virtue of these chimerical nature of theirs, they are often depicted as strange hybrid beings. So well, there you go, strange hybrids, the therianthropes again. Yeah, yeah, the different forms, the dysmorphia. Yeah, and they're talking about archetypes, you know, not being inherently evil, but shapeshifters seem to be changing. You know, shapeshifters are monsters, and 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 they're changing monsters at the same time. So there's this kind of always. It's, it, it's really more like they're just some sort of energy or you know, some non-physical being that can take whatever form it wants. Yes, and for, for this we're going to get to, this is actually where the Neo-Jungians themselves are coming from, not the Neo-Jungians. Carl Jung and his minions basically felt demons were the result of fragmented psyches or complexes created by repressing things deep in the subconscious. And uh, this is Mary Louise France, and I'd like, this is another, you know, one of uh, Jung's disciples who kind of explains what they think is going on. And again, don't worry, we are going to get back to monsters, and we're actually going to talk about why this might be right and why this might only be part of the, Ooh. the, the answer. Okay. Ugly effects and morbid, perverse ideas actually act like demons. They enter us and obsess us. Jung described the demonic, which could also be called black magic, in the following terms. Whereas white magic strives to drive out the forces of disorder in the unconscious, black magic exalts the destructive impulses as the only valid truth in opposition to the order hitherto prevailing, and moreover bends them to the service of the individual as opposed to that of the whole community. The means used for this are primitive fascinating or frightful ideas, images, utterances, incomprehensible to the ordinary understanding, strange words, and so on. The demonic is based on the fact that there are unconscious powers of negation and destruction and that evil is real. A person who exercises such forces of black magic is usually himself possessed by an unconscious content Nice. Thank you, sir. So what the Jungians are saying is that demons equal complexes, inner psyche complexes, and gods are archetypal images like the Ishtadeva stuff. Go ahead. I mean, what's couldn't demons be actual demons that get in you and cause that, though? Right. Very, very, yeah, it's like the, how it reminds they, me of How the, did uh, they know where the line's drawn there is what I wanted. Like, oh, no, it's just you. It's like, well, something made your brain like that. It reminds me of the evil genius piece from Descartes' arguments, but you know that's where I go with that. But this is going to get to right what you're talking about. I guess the crooks of what the Neo-Jungians are saying is the shaman, when fully actualized, he sets the task of helping his community. He has to kind of go out in the tundra, deal with all these complexes, become self-actualized, become this person of power. Then he can come back and he has something to offer his community. Some of them are lost in the tundra, don't make it. Some of those may turn into monsters or they may perish. But what you're saying is, you know, did something put it in there or are there monsters outside or inside or did something come inside from outside and it's that whole ontological where does this 
soup begin. Right. And here's Roger Walsh right on that. And again, uh, the world of shamanism, new views of an ancient tradition. We've talked about him before. Philosophically speaking, we have here two different ontological perspectives. The shamanic view is a realist one since it regards the phenomenon found in the journey as real, objective, and independent of the shaman's mind. The shaman views the journey as truly exosomatic outside of the body rather than as imaginal mind-created imagery. This perspective is consistent with the shamanic worldview, which holds that other worlds and spirits exist independent of the human mind and can be accessed directly through cosmic traveling. So the shaman himself does not agree with the Neo-Jungians. I mean, he, <laughs> well, there's something for you. Well, I, I think the same thing might be happening, but it's your perception of it, right? I mean, these things, right. they are describing a, a very similar thing. These complexes are happening. You're integrating. You're, you're dealing with yourself. It is very an inner struggle, but right. there's also... They're, they're seeing the same thing, but they're tapping into their own experience and, and their own culture and whatnot to define what it is they're seeing right and they come out with totally different definitions it, it, it's i mean not to put it on the much simpler basis it's like we talked about in episode two with the descriptions of slinky the sea serpent and right. gloucester right uh you know some people said its head was bigger than the biggest dog head i've ever seen and some people said a head almost as big as a horse and i'm like well they're saying the same thing they're just using their own reference to describe it right but the neo Jungians would say everything's happening inside you know although the same neo Jungians believe that you can create complexes that can be thrust out into the tundra and you can actually there are projections and we'll talk about that when we talk about poltergeist so there is the neo Jungians are open for field phenomenon but they're mostly saying this is going on as an internal struggle the shaman himself the shaman is saying I go to these different places and I talk to these things and there are monsters out there so there's a difference of that opinion so real demons inner complexes a little of both we're going to get to that because you know eventually we want to make a decision about some of these things because it's my vote at the moment you know pending further evidence and whatnot is that it's actual demons just getting in people and moving around stuff yeah so that and you do bring a new slant to it because it's outside or if it's inside or if it's something outside coming and affecting inside and that's another you gave us a third ontological problem there you go <laughs> i just like to make it complicated is, don't i same as descartes evil genius theory but i want to get more into familiars and yaks because this is kind of the heart of the monstrous these totems seem to be so connected to the shaman um what are the difference between oh this is one question i want to ask you and see where you come and put you on the spot uh, in the moment, what are the differences between a witch's familiars and a shaman's? I mean, what do you think offhand? Um, the the shamans seem more apt to turn into things, so maybe they can turn into the same form, whereas the witch can't. Um, That's not where I was going, but I think it's true. Well, I'm I'm I, no, I think I'm, I'm right. going to brainstorm here for a second. No, that you did so far so good. That wasn't okay. even what I was thinking, but I'm going to give you credit for that. Also, the I feel like the shaman is more connected in that they actually see through their eyes, hear through their ears. Whereas I feel like the lore, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the lore with more the the witch Wiccan side of things is the that, creature comes back and reports. Yeah, they can. It, they're like <laughs> Doctor Doolittle almost. They can yeah. communicate. They they they're very locked in with them. Back but, to but beast, they can't you actually. Beastmaster on the mind, don't you? <laughs> well, they can't actually take over the senses. Yeah, like the shaman can, I guess. 
It's an, it, both of those are really good points. Not sure with that second one where the overlap is, but you're right. It seems like Beastmaster was sending out Ogo and Pogo and then reporting back. does seem like same thing with Odin. He sent his ravens out. They came back to report. Beastmaster did both because he saw through the hawk's eyes. Ooh. But the, the weasels just kind of went out and like he would tell them what to do and they'd go do it and then come back. So there you go. It's this overlap. We're back to this overlap. Total overlap. Um, where I was going with it, and that's really good um, brainstorming, by the way. It wasn't what I had in mind, but that's terrific. I was just saying in general, reading over the folklore, they tend to pick different yaks, different totem animals. Oh, I guess that's true too. Which like is, the shaman does the dog and the witch does the cat. Yeah, correct. That's interesting. So the, yeah. And just kind of zeitgeisty wise, witches tend to be more female and the shaman tend to be more male, mm-hmm. right? And it's their cats and dogs. Mm-hmm. Living that, together. That's interesting. Dogs. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, witches had frogs, snakes, and house cats. And shamans tend to obviously the ones we talked about where there's the, the more positive side or the buffalo and the bear and the eagle. Bigger animals the, too. The witch kind of tend toward the smaller yeah. animals, whereas the shaman go big. Yeah. But Dracula, of course, could change into a bat, and that sees, again, that overlap creature You know that can do some of those different things. But it seems also there's a different uh, makeup of the relationship. In general, and I could be wrong on this, but in general it seems like with the shaman, they kind of get that the totem is almost the El Jefe. Like, this is actually, I can't do this without you. Right. And then the Cicerer, or, and I don't want to put the witch in the same because there's obviously Wiccan and I don't want to get too Right, confused. totally different. Yeah, diff- different branches there. But the, the negative witch, you know, the Cicero witch is is more about using these animals and that, like they're the mine and it's like van- like, like Dracula who has the creatures of the night under his, his, right, his uh, right. spell. And the shaman is un- understanding that it's actually the totem who gave me, I had to go through this gate where the, where the animal gave me this power. And it seems to be a different relationship a little bit, at least to some degree, you know. Right, it's a, a different kind of control right. that they're influencing on things. But it does change from tribe to tribe, coming to coming. I'm not talking, I'm talking about little generalities here, and I'm not trying to upset folks, but at, at the same time, I'm just seeing some of the trends and going over some of the patterns. But if you have an animal spirit, it seems to be, there seems to break down into this, ancestral spirit old shaman or an animal spirit or this third quasi category of like nature deities or angels or kind of elementals that we were talking about this is where that energy initially comes from like compressed ice was a nature element right right some of these others are are totems i couldn't always tell whether we were talking about an ancestral spirit or nature deity or whether it was a totem there's an overlap that was hard to tease out sometimes. It's like they're just playing with us because when so many different things can take all these different forms, how are we to know what's what? Right. Here's one breakdown from Mongolia. This is a Mongolian tribe, and this is how the Chukchi kind of break it down. They have the Ezis, which are these various landscape spirits, uh, nat- nature entities that guard places. Uh, it's like the scorpions guarding the underworld for for Gilgamesh or the sprites guarding certain water holes, Sir Nunes guarding the forest. Cerberus. Cerberus guarding the underworld. Uh, and then we got Luc, L-U-C, these, more of these ancestor spirits that again show up on multiple continents. Then we have the on-gods to the Mongolians. This is a shamanic helper spirit. Again, it's like the Ikelas, the familiars, the Yeks, oh my. 
Uh, we got the ch- then we have the Chogars, these dangerous demon-like spirits that are out there. This bad shamanic energy that's that creates these predatory monsters. So they have the they have again they have the Ezis, landscape spirits. They have the Luck, these ancestor spirits. They have the On Gods, these shamanic helper totems. And they have the Chogars, these total wild evil energy spirits around. And that breakdown is very common globally. Right, right. I'm going to have to find out which tribe exactly that is because it's related to the Chukchi of the Arctic. So this is a Mongolian breakdown, and I'll have to find out the tribe because I don't have it written down. Fair enough. And then Chukchi is from the Arctic side of it. It's kind of a similar breakdown. They've got their tribal priests all the way to this Kelit, which is this evil spirit that's out on the tundra You know that causes misfortune. Um, we see that dichotomy, and we see it broken down in those four areas. Kind of, you know, this energe- energetic pattern seems to explain power, shaman, monsters. It's all the same kind of combination, the same soup or variation, kind of creates the different things that we're kind of coming across. I think they operate in the quantum realm in a way, but Maybe. I'm not. I'm not going to just derail us with that whole tangent right now. We'll bring. We'll bring that in for real later sometime. But. No, I agree. I think the the quantum piece is a is an important one, and we will be discussing it because it's like they're controlling the energy mm-hmm. of the universe, even like being able to just shape shift like that, disappear and blow, move that fast, and mm-hmm. it, it it really has a very quantum like total entanglement with everything around them kind of feel to it. Yeah. Spooky activity at a distance, you know. Exactly, exactly. So a, 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 a skin blanker here, and then it's a mile away a minute late, second later. Yeah. That kind of, there's something going on, obviously, if that's happening for reals. Uh, all the helpful shamanic practices have their darker counterparts, depending, of course, on their intentionality. The bad ones are the skin. Walkers. Or Sith. Servers. Or shape. Shifters. See, we are a married couple now. See, we got it down. <laughs> We finish each other's sentences. No, I was going to say sandwiches. <laughs> sandwiches. We see that too. It's true. But my concern is, so here's what I want to ask. Is every shapeshifter a rogue shaman? Like that's where I'm getting at. Or is the same energies or forces involved? Um, we're discussing, you know, I, I think there's a cryptoid component. We talked about cryptoids. Like that's that Kalit, yeah. that's that evil spirit, that's that evil energy, that's that jinn, that's that yeah. stuff that's out that doesn't isn't corporeal that it seems to be very dangerous. It goes in your brain is like what's gonna freak him out the most, and then it does that. Yes. To give you a little frosty teaser for next time, we are gonna be going up north and Nud Rasmussen, who Alfred Reby kind of discusses in his book that you lent me, I actually went back and read all the Nud Rasmussen accounts. And he talks about this woman shaman named Takoranak. Uh, and it's actually, you know, she, she believes that she's uh, an avianthrope. And this is only a story from 1929. So we're not even talking about 100 years ago. And here's the account. My father and mother often had children that died. My father was a great shaman. And he was very anxious to have children. He went up inland to an ice loom and asked it to help him. My father and mother say that it was the aid of this creature that I was born. A strange creature it was, half bird, half human. So so it was that I came into this world and I lived. This wow. is This is less than 100 years old. We're talking about, you know, the Inuit, and we're talking about less than 100 years ago, and we're talking about a person who thinks she's part bird. Yeah, you wouldn't think a story like that would be that recent. 
Right. But let's head back to Nagual country, south of the border, and talk about the Nagual. Some of these spirit guardians of Mexico, as well as South and Central America, I found these old accounts from the Spanish historian Orozaco Yabera. Keep in mind, late colonial time period is what we're talking about. This is not just yesterday. The devil was accustomed to deceive these natives by appearing to them in the form of a lion, a tiger, a coyote, a lizard, a snake, a bird, or other animal. To these appearances, they apply the name Naguelas, which is as much as to say guardians or companions. And when such an animal dies, so does the Indian to whom it was assigned. There was a Nagual sighting incident in Mexico, like, was that last year? You have to find that. Yeah, we'll have to look that up. But in this case, the animal died with the person, and, and that's, again, where there's different accounts, where we find different tribes have different beliefs. This is more of an ontonic relationship, and we'll talk about that, where they're so intertwined, so interconnected, that if the person dies, the animal dies. Or if the totem dies, the person dies. It's like, like they share a spirit. Right, exactly. Same yek relationship kind of happens in different places. It's so like when you, die, when you die in the game, you die for real kind of stuff. Yes, exactly. So, But Nawal equals sorcery back there. And John Kachuba, back to that shapeshifters of history, he explains the term Nawal means, translates roughly as transforming witch. So he also points out their association to Brujos or Mexican witches. So they're specifically shape-changing witches, the Nagual. Right, and that's exactly, it's a shaman. And, so it's and, really, yeah, they fit in with the... They tie into this whole transformational component to even how they were named. Right, right. And this is, again, Wabara again. This is, uh, I have these uh, references, by the way, in the show notes, but the Nagual is generally an old Indian with red eyes who knows how to turn himself to a dog, woolly, black, and ugly. A female witch can convert herself into a ball of fire which is the power of flight and at night will enter the windows and suck the blood of little children see there it is again that the the masculine the male turns into the the violent vicious beast and the feminine is very elemental she has the fire in the air and whatnot right and they come in from the outside and they attack right um but basically I think we, we hit on that one before, but these themes are everywhere. So this is just one yeah. of a gazillion. Again, I you can't get away from the patterns when you read it enough about this stuff. Uh, same breakdown continent by continent, which again makes no sense to me. Here's what you were just saying, and I wrote it down. Male shamans are often canines. Female witches tend to be balls of fire or vampiric night stalkers. They seem global and... You know, I'm sorry I actually said that because we've already kind of covered that in the conversation. <laughs> yes, I, I keep jumping on your, <laughs> stepping on your toes there. But some folks have already started to lump these things together. UFOs, fairies, lights, therianthropes, and other shape-shifting monsters. Hancock, Guiley, Cleland, Redfern, you, because you started getting ahead of yourself mm-hmm. and when you started to hear this stuff. Keep in mind, we're talking about witches, warlocks, sorcerers, nogwells, and even ogres, who are also like onions, by the way. I believe the original energy processes or pro- proto-magical beings were the shaman. You have a question. How are ogres like onions? Um, you just got to go back and watch Shrek. Ogres, they have many layers. Fair enough. They have many layers. Ogres have many layers. Okay. Everything is a derivative or variation or trickling down effect of that proto-energy dynamic, the shaman. Here's Carlos Castaneda. I know people mix feelings about him. But a generic term applied to a sorcerer in each generation who had some specific energetic configuration that set him apart from the others, 
Only the Nagual had the energetic capacity to be responsible for the fate of his cohorts, and that from the active side of infinity. Um, and again, that shows you the pressure. If you're going to deny this, hey, you've been chosen to save your people. No, I'm going to stream Hulu, dude. Like, there's consequences for not heeding. And we talked about this, the hero's journey. I realize we're swinging back around. Here's some old accounts from old priest Daniel Britton, late 1800s, talking about the 1600s when the Spaniards first ran into the Aztecs. Again, we might have touched on this before, but here's one account from Father Sahagun. The Nawali, or magician, is he who frightens men and sucks the blood of children during the night. He is well-skilled. Now, there's a male doing this, and there's, again, that overlap. He is well-skilled in the practice of his trade. He knows all the arts of sorcery, Nawatl, and employs them with cunning and ability. But for the benefit of men only, not for their injury. Those who have recourse to such arts and evil intent injure the bodies of their victims, cause them to lose their reason, and smother them. These are wicked men and necromancers. And here's an account from Father Juan Bantista, 1600. There are magicians who call themselves Tequasequa, T-E-C-I-U-H-T-A-Z-Q-U-E, and also... That's a good one. Yeah, and also be the term Nanaholton, who conjure the clouds when there's danger of hail. Kind of a rain dance connection there. That elemental again, yeah. Yep. So the crops may not be injured. They can also make stick look like serpent, a mat like a centipede, a piece of stone like a scorpion, and similar deceptions. Other of these Nanahuatl, Nanahuatl, by the way, is the language of the Nanahuans and Mexican Aztecs, will transform themselves to all appearances into a tiger, a dog, or a weasel, or an owl. So Ooh, an owl, nice. We also find peyote or peyotl back in those rituals. So again, there's that component. Yeah, the psychedelic aspect. We look at everything having a mix of a little positive and a little bad, a little bit country, a little bit rock and roll. Nothing's yeah. inherently anything. Yeah. From that area, the only thing they say that is absolutely evil is the owl and the peyote. So weird. Okay. Yeah. There you go. So that that shows you though that. Those are going to be associated with Sithers. I will say that owls are not what they appear to be. Oh, I'm not. We, we're going to have an owl week, dude. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have an owl extravaganza plan for episode 17. I don't know what it's going to be, but I'm working on it. Uh, or I'm starting to work on it, basically. But again, these quotes were from Nagualism, a study in Native American folklore and history by Daniel G. Brenton. I will have that in the show notes. So then I found Francis Newell. A lot of stuff, by the way, is on uh, Internet Archive. We talked about archive.org. Yeah, definitely a great uh, resource. He translated some of these old Indian stories, and, sh- and shamans are there in the background of all these Passamaquoddy tales, which their Moat is their shaman, M-O-W-E-T. So we're heading to the old stomping, your old stomping grounds, the Passamaquoddy, and the shaman are also called, the full one is <laughs> M-O-T-E-W-O-L-O-N-N-U-W-I-H-P-O-N-O-L-O-S-K. Yeah, those <laughs> those Northeast tribes had a totally different language than the Southwest yeah. tribe. Like the spelling of stuff up there gets crazy sometimes. It's pronounced super fragilistic. Yeah. But it means the one who puts a curse on you. Ooh. And this study from Newell discusses six Algonquin or Passamaquoddy tales and it's called Six Short Tales of Witchcraft. And one is about shamans fighting by a lake. 
Uh, another is two shamans. One turns into a snake, one turns into a turtle, and they kind of do battle. It's back to that old time that they could actually transform in, into things and people could watch them fight. It's very That's Pokemon. Cool. It's kind of a Pokemon game going on. Of the six stories Newell translates from the Passamaquoddy, five are outright tales of powerful shamans or beings of power. The sixth is a story about a forest giant or a kiwa. For our side trail excursion, I make the case that all six stories involve shaman. That's what I'm going to do oh, cool. for that. That'll wherever, be fun. Wherever we find shapeshifters, we find shaman or shamanic energies. The other five, Newell clearly, you know, Newell basically has these six stories. He clearly describes five of these as shaman stories. And it seems to be he was kind of, at least reading it, he was kind of believing what he was hearing to some degree. Like he was intrigued at the very least of what right. he was hearing. Uh, but the sixth one, when we do the side trail, you get to decide if it's a shaman, if it's a Wendigo, or if it's a Bigfoot. So that's going to be, or none of the above, or A and C. Those going to be the, <laughs> going to be the answer. <laughs> so there's your teaser for that. But how do we get from shaman to a sister? And again, we talked about this, so I just want to go through it real quick. We got the failed initiate, you know, someone who's trying to make it and then fails in the middle. Many of them fail because they fail. They try to go through this process and can't, or they don't, again, they don't have that person physically helping them as we talked about. Yeah, the teacher is a big part of it. If the teacher's not there, and some of them learn just enough to kind of step aside and be assholes. (laughs) And that's the other piece of this. And some of them slaughter a village of sand people. Yeah. So this, I found this since we've been talking, and it kind of relates to exactly what we guessed. Uh, This from factsanddetails.com. Siberian shaman, and this is, again, about what happens to someone who doesn't complete the shaman training. It says, Siberian shamanic cultures believe such beings lost their humanity. They became dark and cannibalistic. Ooh, so, so they just, they go dark even without the power. That, and this is Siberia and has a cannibalistic component. Southwest right. has a cannibalistic component. Again, oh, yeah, huh. So big surprise. Same themes. This account from Anthrobase.com, that Mongolian group again. I'm not free to choose to be a shaman or not. My fate is to be a shaman. In the old days, there was one man in my clan who was chosen to become a shaman. He did not make the right sacrifices, did not believe at the worship places he made. Wrong sacrifices, he became a chogar, C-H-O-T-G-O-R. This happened if your father's mother's line has a shamanic heritage and you do not believe and worship the look those ancestor spirits, or on gods, those yeks or imagats of this line, or you make the wrong sacrifices, you will become a chogar, which is, again, that evil spirit, that cryptoid, that energy in the wind, that uh, djinn-like creature out in the tundra. If you don't work toward the good, you just slide into the bad, basically. Yes. Wow. Yes, yes, yes. It will mess you up. So... Returning to the Eastern version of this, here's the handbook of Hindu mythology, the myth of Bala, uh, an asura or demon mentioned that he knew and taught 96 kinds of magic to mess with the divas or divinities. Hainuman, who's that, uh, basically that god that's kind of like the monkey, the blue monkey god. So Hainuman was said to practice the eight superhuman powers of Ashta cities. Austerities, tapas that generated power, cities, were not always ascetic. Most myths not only linked austerities with power, but also linked the use of those powers with non-aesthetic or often immoral goals, killings, cursings, etc. One practiced tapas in order to gain siddhis. So here's the key. 
The demons, the Soras, usually would quit their practice, fasting, yoga, meditation, worship, as soon as they acquired the Siddhi they sought, immortality, invincibility, and the like. Same thing we mm-hmm. talked about. It's another version of this. But people just learning enough, just meditating enough, just doing enough tantric stuff to to learn some tricks and go mess with people. It is interesting <laughs> that meditation's involved because as we, you know, harp, I feel like I'm harping on it a little bit this episode, but the whole mental state thing and the energy thing, to achieve those different powers, you have to achieve the different energy and the different vibration and whatnot. Yeah, so you, what you're saying is how do you go into all these good and higher vibrations and then twist it to make it such an evil thing? And it is an interesting right, thing. I don't, right. I don't know. Well, I mean, it's not inherently good or bad. The power is there. It's up to the, the individual how they want right. to use it, right? Right. So if you learn the power and you help the community, you're a shaman. If you do personal power and step aside and just try to do things for your own benefit, you become a sithsar. Exactly, exactly. And this from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And nobly born, the Daihini and other deities are born of the power of Samhadi, or meditation. Freitas, or unhappy spirits or shades, and malignant spirits of a certain order, are those who, by changing their feeling or mental attitude, while in the intermediate state, that's the key, that boundary, Jeremy, remember it's a boundary, Assume, Always assume that very shape after attain and became Pradas, evil spirits, and Rakshasas possess the power of shape shifting. So, shape shifting, you do get to be a shape shifter if you go the wrong direction. It's the same energy and power, just going a different direction. With All right, it. just using it differently. Yep. So, you know, uh, there's also an interesting etymological piece. City, S I D H E, is the archaic name for fairy, which I thought was interesting. I don't know if it has any meaning. <laughs> I well, that's like the stuff. same word that you were talking about for the power. The city, right, the, the city, city is the powers through meditation, and that's kind of the, and, and again. How do you spell that one? S-I-D-H-I. And, and the other one is D-H-E. S-I-D-D, there's an extra D. Okay, but it's almost the same word. It's S-I-D-D-H-I-S, um, you know, is basically the generated powers from meditation. And there's an ancient variation of fairy, Sidhi, S-I-D-H-I. No idea if it's meaningful. Wow. I don't like. I, like etymolo- etymologically, I just say what I see, come yeah. across, and someone else have to tell me if it's significant because <laughs> yeah, I don't I mean, know. That sounds like a linguistic connection to me. Yeah, it is interesting for sure. Right. So this account comes from a Dakota medicine man. After they shamans have four times run their career in human shape, they are annihilated. They may likewise be transformed into wild beasts. There you go. That's from Fetichism, A Contribution to Anthropology and the History of Religion by Schultz. And it's, again, you have this decision after the shaman dies, whether they move on, whether they turn into a wild beast, whether they come back, whether they help the next generation, or whether they turn into animals. And we're going to see this theme come up more and more when we talk about other shape-shifting monsters from around the world, a little closer deep dives. Did you? I think you said something in a previous episode about um, they hit a point where they have to decide if they're going to die or stay in animal form forever kind of thing, right? Yeah, I think they hit that moment where it's, it's they're saying four times you can be reincarnated basically as a shaman. So you come you back go. as a person. And then after that, it's like you run your course. Now you can even move on to the uh, underworld or you can become a, your totem animal. 
be Mr. Limpet. Yeah. <laughs> the incredible, isn't it? No, there's an old, <laughs> old reference, reference for you. Notice, That's a notice I was there with you. Sadly. Sadly. Do they even show that movie anymore? I hope not. About uh, four is a sacred number of many tribes. It matches the four cardinal points, and there's the four guardian monsters we always talk about. And so the shaman gets four cycles to either be critters or monsters. There's another four I came across. I'm going to throw this in now, and I know this is more on the theory side, but uh, here's the fun fact, is that 4 to 4.5 hertz is similar to Zen meditation, and 4 hertz is the threshold when the weirdness begins of theta waves. And again, that's where all the trance states and the shamanic journey seems to happen. And is it a surprise that it's at the level of 4? That it starts the, to be the boundary. The sacred number. The sacred for, number. For the, for the tribes here in the southwest, right. at least. I know that. So the drum beats or the altered states that they try to get into or whatever they would be listening to to try to get hit that 4 to 4.5 hertz level. It's funny how they code the information into culture sometimes. Yeah, it's very Hancockian when we talk about the, it really math, is, the yeah. math behind things. Why shaman... This is back to my theme and back to my shamanic shapeshift complex. Why the shaman? Why is it so at the base of kind of everything? I realize sometimes we're still talking about witches and sorcerers. The same energies and similar techniques are involved. There are likely some very powerful witches, black magicians, occultists, voodoo queens lurking about. But I'm making the case that the shaman is the proto-practitioner. Even though many times we're really talking about variations of a magical theme, I think they're the oldest for one. So it that's the reason you chose to use that term as the umbrella term for all this because you feel they're the deepest root of the tree. Yeah, I think that's what's really, you know, maybe that's the they it's the proto practitioner. They were yeah, the first. Enough. It's the that same energies were describing it differently. Uh Therianthropes seemed to pop up and, everywhere too. And they were saying how little variation it took, but maybe it took a little more than we think because all those other things did spin out of that, like right. the, the witchcraft and the, 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 the medicine man and I mean, whatever other variations you can come up with for this stuff. I mean, that's the tree of it, right? But right. it all grew from the trunk of shamanism. Right. That, that's just my opinion. And again, Therianthropes, why we see all these half-man, half-beasts, I think it's because of the shamanic journey. This is what they see. This is what they painted on the walls. I would love to say this is my theory, but actually if you go back and read Supernatural again, there's a guy who really covers it, and Hancock covers him. David Lewis Williams is really the one who kind of nails this, and this is a quote of Hancock talking about Lewis Williams. Lewis Williams augurs that is, and that all the sources we need for this more advanced level of decoding await us ethnographic and anthropological reports of shamanic beliefs and experiences around the world. Remarkable cross-cultural commonalities that characterize such beliefs and experiences are explained by the fact that shamanism itself is merely one of the natural and predictable means by which the universal human capacity to enter altered states of consciousness is socially channeled. What marks shamans out is that they exercise this capacity more frequently than others, that they do so on behalf of their community, that they build up high levels of skill, familiarity, and confidence in navigating the hallucinatory spirit world negotiating with supernatural beings who inhabit it. And that's basically Hancock talking about David Lewis Williams. That's a great um, breakdown. So, yeah, and I think that's why I want to give Mad Cujo's to David Lewis Williams. Oh, David Lewis Williams wins this week Mad Cujo's Award. Ooh. Ooh. Ah, damn good.
And I kind of defy you to read. Like I read Iliad. I reread Archaic Shamanism. And it's like a, I don't know, 450 page book. And I read uh, Encyclopedia Shamanism, Prots, both volumes, or at least, you know, I looked through it. I didn't read all of it, but I definitely looked through most of it. And it's tough to not come away with that same. I mean, even Hancock says, David Lewis Williams, it's kind of a crazy, it's kind of a crazy theory he has. Yeah, but it yeah, seems it's like seems like it's right on. It seems like if you read this, like what else could be the explanation? But folks like Nick Redfern believe a good chunk of it all shapeshifters. You know, we got the you know ogres and witches and warlocks and archaic magical beings, Sithers. So basically, I'm saying that the shaman doesn't quite get the airtime it should. It goes back to that you know George Knapp book where Hunt for the Skinwalker. Oops, I did it again. <laughs> but every every time we talk about this, um, you know, we talk about the Native American component, and nobody talks about the shaman as much. They make mention of it. They say, wow, this seems very Native American connected. And then that's where the trail ends for many. And there's hints of it. Like there's a shaman behind this or that or the other thing, but nobody really researches it or mentions it as much. It doesn't get the playtime right, <laughs> as right. it should. Well, because so. people don't generally go back that far in history, honestly. Like, even what they teach you in school, they call this thing prehistory. Mm-hmm. That, you know, the farthest they'll possibly go back is 10,000 years, and everything else before that, for some reason, doesn't matter. But we have things from tens of thousands of years ago that show there was a human culture, that, you know, there's art and building and all these things. And especially with discoveries of places like Gobekli Tepe and all that, mm-hmm. if that place was built twelve thousand years ago, how long were people around and doing, you know, these cultural societal things before they were would even be able to make a place like that? Yeah, how ingrained is it from the culture, the world culture that that you know it, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Yeah. Did we have this culture where shamanism was so powerful that it's actually embedded epigenetically in us uh, as it became an archetype because of that or is it a natural part of the human psyche that bu- rebubbles up you know and i i don't know i, I think we're gonna yeah. either way it, it does feel almost like a, a dna memory sort of thing yeah. that's just in us and it has been for time out of mind yes uh, today there's still endless encounters with therianthropic creatures but any direct connection to living shamans remains elusive uh, a lot of what we encounter today seems to be this night shifty, ethereal, ethereal shadow people-y, Kalit, evil spirit, you know, what the Mongolians were talking night about. Night shifty, yeah. It's night shifty. Uh, but here's another connection between modern psychotherapy and shamanism. Uh, this, from Mar- again, from Mary Louise von France from Psychotherapy. The roots of both priesthood and psychotherapy lie in the primitive phenom- phenomenon of shamanism and the existence of medicine men. Shaman or medicine men is mainly concerned with the fate of the individual soul, its preparation for death, its protection and after death, and its protection against states of possession by ghosts and demons by archetypal powers. And she connects it to kind of like this is the first therapist. <laughs> right, right. But shamanic wisdom reigned globally for eons, and it, you know, it's intertwined again. So here's another example, and this from the Elements Encyclopedia of the Psychic World by Teresa Chung. A number of other words are used to describe mediums such as channeler, fortune teller, witch, medicine man, mystic, priest, prophet, 
and wise woman, but important distinctions can also be made. According to experts, the role of the medium may have developed historically out of the role of the shaman who communicated with the spirit world by becoming possessed by spirit deities and animal spirits. So again, it's back to that proto-energy. Right, and it's also possessed by spirits. It's not something already in them. It's something from the outside coming in. Right, right. And channeling, kind of a channeling thing. So we got a connection between therapy and we got a connection between mediums. You know, I think there's a lot of disciplines that would be connected to this if we really thought about it. And and this from Roger Walsh, again, The World of Shamanism, New Views of an Ancient Tradition. Mediumship can be interpreted in many ways. However, it certainly points to capacities of mind that remain as yet little understood and reminds us that we have underestimated the wisdom and creative powers latent within us. Long ago, shamans became the first pioneers to explore and cultivate these powers. I wholeheartedly agree that we underestimate our own abilities with such things. Yep. Uh, Samantha J. Kyra, I mentioned her once before from Western Michigan University. She had a really kind of cool uh, thesis about kind of the Celts and Scandinavians and the literary side of this. Uh, here's a quote from her. The idea and belief behind shape-shifting derives from animism, animal totem, and taboo. Ultimately, shamanism and the separable soul. The double and the psychological projection all had a part in the development of the literary form of this idea. So that's the literary side, but still pointing to shamanism as kind of the proto-theme. Right, so this is all supporting your theory of it being the trunk of the tree. Yes, and she talks about two types of magic in her thesis, Galder, and this is from the Celtic side, Galder magic, which was associated with writing poetry, the bards, you know, Taliesin, the older magic, Siddur, S-E-I-D-R, associated with shamanism. Uh, So... Behind all witches, ogres, trolls, fairies, sorcerers, necromancers, conjurers, jinn, aliens, bushwhackers, shit kickers, Methodists, you know, all that. <laughs> Proto-magical <laughs> beings, again, our friends, the shaman. And we also see a connection with uh, witchcraft. This from Jeffrey B. Russell, a History of Witchcraft, Sorcerers, Heretics, and Pagans. The worldwide similarity of sorcery beliefs constitutes the most curious and important dilemma in the study of witchcraft. When we find centuries and continents apart, the idea of a night hag seducing men, murdering children of a sorceress riding a broomstick, we are not entitled to dismiss the question of how these similarities arise. Mm-hmm. So even on the witchcraft end of it, they're looking at these similarities. Even the classical witches could shapeshift into beasties. And the Romanian witches, by the way, were particularly adept at it. No surprise there. The Carpathian Mountains where we have That's the, where the vampires, vampires come from. Vampires come from, exactly. But these folks constantly deal in altered states of consciousness, which in large doses can lead to visual and auditory hallucinations, many of which involve shape-shifting or therianthropic themes. Again, we keep finding shamanic shape-shifting energies. Again, that nature deities or ancestral spirits or ghosts or totem animals. This is where I found kind of the best thesis to kind of really kind of get to the bottom of this. comes from Sharon and Johannes Mertz's study. Uh, They are somewhat molder-like in the scholarly realm, full of scullies. Or at least they respect the local ontology. They kind of immersed in in the culture, and they kind of came out of it with a different perspective. And the thesis is crocodiles are the soul of the community, an analysis of human-animal relations in northwest Benin. Basically, we're talking about South America, and we're talking about a shamanistic society that has crocodile humans uh, as part of it. 
Uh, her husband, Johannes Mertz, 2017, created the term Entons, which briefly represents a relational and symbiotic combo package, ultimately experiential in nature. Describes the ontological enmeshment of the totem animal and the individual, which the Blibe, which of the West Africa, who the Mertzes lived with for years, see as this really entwined relationship. Entangled, maybe. Yeah. Instead of entwined, a quantum relationship between yeah. the, the sorcerer and the... And the uh, or the shaman in the yek. Yes, I was, as I was reading it, I was thinking about what you said you know, earlier in the episode, definitely. That community view, this totem relationship that allows for shape-shifting creatures, kind of the mill about town. The name of the study says it all. Crocodiles are the souls of the community. It's the most common is the crocodile shapeshifter. Is this very real entity for this tribe? Some crocodiles are posing as men. Others, these Anton pairing, a crocodile-human kind of combo. So it's kind of tough to see which is which. Some are crocodiles that come become humans and go into town. Other is this pairing from birth between a human and a crocodile. Uh, the Mertz has found that in this region, the totem and the individual are really inseparable. Like think Bragelina. Like kind of, oh wait, they separated. We can't do that. Dang it. <laughs> that's, that's an old rhetoric. <laughs> Here's an excerpt of crocodiles posing as humans. And this from the Mertz study. Crocodiles like to attend parties, go to market, and pose as ferrymen, for example, uh, and will sh- shapeshift into humans so they can pursue these activities. Shapeshifting is not limited to crocodiles, though. Several Mbleme-speaking communities are renowned for their ability to shapeshift between their human and totem animal form. There's a connection between shapeshifters and psychopomps, but these are literally ferrymen. So they're fer- you know, psychopomps as leaders to the underworld. And these are actually somehow uh, ferrymen in, in, in ferrying people across rivers and stuff in like, this community. Like Karen on the river sticks. Correct. Exactly. Mertz discusses a Cohen E study in 2008, which breaks down. We've mentioned this before because you, you were asking questions ahead of time again about executive versus pathogenic possession. Executive is when it's totally taken over your mind and you're completely possessed and out of control. Pathogenic is you're more controlling it. Shamans would be controlling would, right, for the right. most part. Um, that comes from Cohen E. Uh, what is spirit possession? That is a study from 2008. If I understand what the Mercers are getting at, they don't think either of these types of possession really captures this totem arrangement for this particular tribe. I did find the pairing somewhat uh, different from what Arctic tribes are describing because the Arctic tribes are not describing you know like i said earlier the, the totem can there's actually ones i came across that the, it's like a guardian spirit the totem will kill you if you turn out to be an asshole right right <laughs> so that's a different thing this they're talking about it's so entwined or entangled one dies the other dies you know right they Dying seem the game die for real yes they seem to talk about the yek getting angry and leaving the host or in some tribes if their human counterpart turns out to, you know they they just off them uh, here's the sci-fi examples, and I try to create something that would make sense to our sci-fi fans out there. Executive possession uh, is kind of a Graul symbiont thing from SG-1 or Linda Blair affair, kind of if you go back to The Exorcist. Okay. Both will constitute executive takeovers. The Graul's completely in charge. Only right after the Graul dies does the human host have time to say crap, and then the human dies. So at the oh. end of all the SG-1s, when they beat the Graul, the human host dies a, a minute later. It's right. time to say, my name was Bob. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> and he dies. But pathogenic possession is more of an Edgar Casey or Madame Blavatsky or even shamanic rituals. 
So they are channeling these energies and spirits again. Uh, the ontonic pairing that the Mertzes are talking about is more like a Jadzia Dax Deep Space Nine thing. Do you remember this? So there's a trill pairing. Although in the Trek example, this merger is between two consenting aliens, not an animal-human pairing from birth or after some shamanic initiation. But also the host can die and the trill can move to another host. Right, so it's not, right. it's not exactly an ontonic pairing, uh, but that's the closest I could come in the sci-fi realms. Nice Deep Space Nine reference. I haven't heard one of those in a while. There that's we go. a good one. Um, more on this when we get into the Kinema shape-shifting episode, and that's actually what the Mertzes were talking about, was the Kinema and the crocodile gods and the, the huh. shamans there, and more to come from that, for sure. I'm just getting a handle on that study, and you know, like I said, I'm looking forward to getting deeper into that at some point. Yeah, I like this arc you're doing, because you're doing like the history and the general background and stuff, and then you're going to get into the more specific actual creatures. Yeah, and here's where I broke it down into the, these five shifts. I broke shape-shifting. Like, if you're going to run a shape-shifter factory, you're going to need five shifts covered. First shift is uh, mimesis, which has occurred through the hunter-gatherer realms. These are those tribal members connecting with an animal for the purpose of increasing one's chances to more have a more productive hunt. They usually use mimicry. These are kind of your first-tier workers. They're clocking in and out. They're not salaried employees. They're your basic <laughs> medicine man. They're your yeoman, shaman. They're part-time in training kind yeah. of thing. They're doing their thing. No, they have their function. They're just not the top dogs, basically. Right. Second shift, we find those individuals who can clearly be possessed by animals in question, pathogenically, yet do not transform physically, much like our, you know, like the leopard men of Sierra Leone or... They're uh, the berserkers to some degree. They're definitely channeling something, but what else they're doing, I guess, leaves to be seen. Right. You know, if you're in the same room with them, most of the time you're just going to see a guy. You know, it's Max in his little it's, suit. His it's not full-on transformation, but they right. they kind of transform their mind state to enter a bit of a different realm. Yeah, the berserkers are probably the best example. Of that. Yeah, that's that's probably the best way to put it for the culture we're working in. Yep. And then the third shift are those who can project into a beastie for reconnaissance, assassination, or other purposes. They can project their essence into their totem yek ikla. They can see through their eyes like a witch's familiar, Odin's ravens, or like the shaman Parlop from episode one. It's kind of more astral projection, remote viewing, but there's definitely a connection between someone lying in bed and then maybe something that's flying around out in you know space. So that's third shift. Fourth shift, real reason we're here in the monster podcast land. These beings can turn into their totem animal. They're inextricably and forever linked to their animistic totem counterpart, like what the Mertz call this ontonic pairing. They could become a crocodile and eat someone for lunch. They could become a werewolf. Um, this is also our skin Walker. To some to say, you know, to some degree. For these, the person doesn't have a double, just lying back in his bed. He or she completely transform into the creature in question. Pay those workers well. They're hard to come by these days. But <laughs> uh, they should follow all factory safety policies and procedures because they are going to be, you know, a bit of a risk management. Well, that, that's where they hit the top tier kind of thing. Yeah, I think. But I got one other shift. Okay. So I broke it down to five. That's four. This is the night shift. This is the energy spirit or ethereal class. That group of full cryptoid encounters with dark energy, shape-shifting entities, or tulpas, shadow people, therianthropes derived from hallucinogens. The hypnagogic stuff we're talking about, apparitions, ghosts, poltergeists, kind of they're, these unconscious complexes. Right, right. They're, uh, 
they're they're post biological. They've they've moved beyond the physical and exist as more of an energy form. An energy form out on the yeah the Kielit is it what the Chukchi were talking about that Arctic evil spirit or the Chogars from the Mongolian demons. Going a little further into that vein, there's Ikaroi from Japan can manifest and attack the target of the negative thoughts. I believe this is from uh, Element Encyclopedia of the Psychic World. Teresa Chung again. Thought forms fall into the category summoned by black magic or not. They also relate to the Navajo Chindi, evil shape-shifting spirit, someone who died by violence. We see that theme again. China has this version of the Jiangxi, a vampire or hopping ghost, which enters a corpse of the recent deceased of those who met a violent or unavenged end. Japan has their own version of this, the vengeful spirit, the Goryo or Onyuro. I'm going to stop. <laughs> I could, I could go on, but yeah. I want to give you a quiz. But basically, I mean, Ooh, the quiz, okay. But I want to give you a, basically, you know, a chance to if you have any other questions before the quiz. You know, the professor always got to, has to give you an opportunity to ask before we go into the quiz section. Do you have any questions about those groups? And do you think that they're relevant? That, that this is the five types of things we seem to see. Yeah, it's kind of a good way to break it down, where you have your, you know, it's. Uh you know, your novice and then your advanced and your professional kind of levels of, of power here. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, kind of kind of a good way to, to classify the different levels of ability, I guess. Right. And I also wanted to tie it in that it, there does seem to be a shamanic component to most of this. So hopefully that sure, comes across sure. as well. Okay, I'm, I'm ready for the quiz. Nice. So what shift would you hire the crow for? First, second, third, fourth, or night shift? I hire the crow for. I would like to do the third shift. I'll give you credit. I put third or fourth shift because this crow is kind of one of those overlap. It's almost, you know, it's a maybe even night shift. It really does a reconnaissance piece. I would say more. Well, I'm just thinking that you know the bird that can fly. You can if you can see through its eyes and stuff. It would make a great scout. You know, and like go over there and show me what's going on, kind of thing. Yeah, and and clearly that was the biggest component was the third shift part with the crow and that connection. But I think there's more of an ontonic pairing between those two, and I think this is a more ethereal creature. If I think it could actually work multiple shifts. It was a first and hard question. Cause well, you you know what bird you need for the night shift? What the owl? Yeah, that's true. That's the that's the nocturnal yeah, bird that is not what it seems. Owls or bats? What shift would you hire the gin or genie for? Ooh, uh, the gin. What would I hire the gin for? They're 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 more a night shift, aren't they? Because they take so many forms and have all those different powers and stuff. Yeah, they're clearly not truly physical beings, even though they can be. They seem to be really be having that space between dimensions. They yeah. can shift away. They seem very ethereal. Very they can ethereal. Come to and visit you at night in these forms. So I agree with you. I would put that as night shift. What shift would you hire? Had to do it. The Beastmaster. Huh. Well, he's. He's, he clearly he, falls into one category. Well, he he I peaks at the third shift, right? Because he doesn't physically transform, right. but he does have some animals that he can like see through their eyes and take over their senses, kind of stuff. Yeah, so you can you can make the argument. Actually, you said it during this episode that mm. he actually has an opportunity. He does some for second shift. and some third. Some, well, th- some third and some fourth. He has some fourth. He he yeah. doesn't physically transform. 
Well, if you you were saying though he because he could really yeah I guess because he's sending out the animals and right. some are coming back right and then he's also looking through the eyes right so you're right so he's second and third, third abilities right exactly well done bonus question what shift would you hire the Skeletor from He Man from Skeletor yeah I know these get tough these get tough um. Be prepared to defend your answer. No, just... I mean, I don't think of him in terms of that. Like he's just a skeleton. He's like a reanimated corpse almost. I put I, him I, in. I guess second shift. I put him in fourth. You put him in fourth. And here's why: he's ruler of Inertia's evil twin planet. Clearly a powerful sorcerer, but he's corporeal enough to get his ass handed to him each week by He-Man. He's actual skeleton, so he's firmly shift four camp. He's not just wearing a mask. For our patron members, both of you, you know, I, 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 huh. I would like to add, you know, what what do other people think? Interesting. One? Yeah, let us know. I have one for you. Do it. Got to be able to take it back. What shift would you hire James Earl Jones from Conan the Barbarian for? Second. Incorrect. What? He's fourth. Why? He actually transforms into a giant snake at the end. Oh, man. Uh huh. Oh, man. You got In me front of one. Conan, because Conan actually yeah. kills him while he's in snake form. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. That's a good point. I forgot that part. So you got, you, 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 you mastered the master there on that one. So good job. So I want other people to think about, uh, you know what? And don't answer this one because I couldn't answer it. Uh, what would Gandalf fall into, shift wise? Ooh, uh, he's he's Ginny. He's very Ginny. You know. Anyway, we we're not supposed to talk about it. We're supposed mm. to let people make right. their decision. Right. Okay, and see what shift they feel that falls into. So I hope that helped as far as throwing in the buckets. I kind of wanted to just give you that way to think about it. Maybe you haven't thought yeah. about it before. Yeah, it's, it's a cool way to uh, kind of figure out how powerful they really are. Yeah. And for our Ahul Guano file. Ooh, this week's Ahul Guano theory. Oh, no, here it comes. <laughs> Quick, to the batshit signal. <laughs> I didn't even think of this until we were actually doing the episode, but because you said it, what if what if you planted this whole episode into my head? Because you said that that's one of the ontological. I don't know what you're talking about, Moz. <laughs> I'm just saying. I don't know what you're talking I'm about. I'm talking about inside outside, and you're like, you came in from this other side where you're just planting things in people's brains, and maybe this is your episode. You're actually my yuck. Yeah. Yeah, and you just yep. follow the trail that I put you on. Yep. So this whole thing. It's like the end of that Bob Newhart <laughs> episode. <yeah>. So you're, <laughs> so the Ahu Guano theory this week is, is that I'm the shaman and you're my yuck. Oh, well, really, <laughs> this is your episode. <laughs> and they're all my they're episodes. I really like this theory there very much. I there like it go. very much. Well, there you have it. <laughs> Oh, you're giving me way too much credit, Moz. Yep, as always. <laughs> and the Sir Richard Scully Muggle Ooh. for Skeptic's Corner. This is all I got for this. Sir Richard Scully Muggle Skeptic's Review. 
You're, you're, you're full of crap, and that's the nicest thing that I can say. People cannot physically change an animal's Dana Scully Season 1 episode shapes. Oh, just flat out, huh? That's what she would say. Humans cannot People cannot physically change an animal's. And I think she would say Mulder after that. It's, she doesn't, but I think it's implied. Mulder. She hasn't she seen how that. hairy I am. Yeah, exactly. You're already halfway there, living on a prayer. I'm very slowly transforming. <laughs> and then on the Scully Mulder believability scale. Oh, we're getting right through it. All right. Uh, yeah, Scully Mulder believability scale. They feel your methods, your theories are spooky. Do you think I'm spooky? Wait, why am I Scully? I will start us off. I think there's shamanic energies behind a lot of things. What that is, I don't know, but I believe wholeheartedly that they're they're a thing. And when you just look back to Corey Daniels' uh, little website where he talks up to a clinical psychologist out on the res who's talking about 50% of the folks think some of their problems may be linked to skin walkers. And I think that, like I said, whether they exist or not, there is a powerful phenomenon at work, and there's more to come on that. Whether they are real or not is a different number. We're talking just shapeshifters, really? Yeah, I mean that's what we're. I mean, the title of the mine episode. is shamanic shapeshift complex. So I think shapeshifters and shamans and and that power that to transform is real, uh, whether it is a physical transformation or more of a mental state or it's more of Jeremy projecting an episode into my brain <laughs> leaves to be seen. Yeah, honestly, uh, I, I think we're pretty much on the same page with this one. I'm, I feel the same way. I don't claim to know what it is that's going on, what exactly these people are doing, but I, I, I totally believe in this as, as an actual physical thing it's it's so pervasive in every culture and so much lore to it and i mean there's stories still today come come out every once in a while somebody seeing something that matches all this and it's hard to deny that there's something to it right there's something real going on there you know globally forever yeah i'm (laughs) i'm a i'm a confused 10 as well like i don't really know what's happening but i totally believe that it's a thing yeah I think I dated a confused 10 once. <laughs> it's the only 10s that'll date me are the confused <laughs> ones. <laughs> and finally, we have our Wolfman Puck segment. Ooh, Wolfman Puck's cryptid culinary corner. Your entree, sir. <laughs> How would you cook it? And what are what we cooking? Served with it? You were cooking a shapeshifter. A shamanic shape show. It's not that. Can same. I use an animal that turns into a human instead of a human that turns into an animal? I feel a little better about that. You can go with what makes you feel right. And it's such an unspecific dish. How about I'm going to take, I'm trying, oh, you know which one I want to eat? Uh, I think it was from part one in the last episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing with the hand on its tail. Oh, nice. The Azotl. Yeah. Azotl. There you Aztec. go. There you go. And just for the super creepy cryptid factor, because we are serving the, mm-hmm. the cryptids these meals. Uh, you want to accentuate the hand so coming out of the... Oh my God, my brain is so dark sometimes. Oh, here we go. So this thing has hands on its 
limbs and a hand on its tail. Correct. So it's got like five hands basically because even its feet are like hands, right? Right. So what I would do is I would remove all the hands Mm -hmm. and form them into like bowls Mm -hmm. and then cook up the meat kind of- Like it's serving itself. Tapas style. Yeah, serving itself. And then yeah, the hands are holding the meat when you serve it on the tray. That's deeply disturbing, which could be extra points or it could disqualify you. I I don't know which- (laughs) I'm going to have nightmares tonight. <laughs> How did you? And, and to oh, drink? Wow. Oh, my goodness. Jägermeister. <laughs> <laughs> but the original Berserker Jägermeister that has the deer's blood and the psychedelic mushrooms and the fortified wine. Right, because Jägermeister is Hunter's <laughs> Jäger, and it's there's a deer. and do go Yeah, that's why you bit. have the deer with the cross on its head on the Jägermeister label because they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're kind of... Naming it after that old berserker thing. Nice. That had the deer's blood and the psychedelics in it. Nice. So it's going to be a horrifying meal with a very weird night following it. Yeah, and a really bad hangover the next day. You thought of everything. I wouldn't, I don't want to go to that dinner that I just (laughs) created. I really don't. But I'm I'm hoping the wolfman will love it. I think we're going to have a hard time determining who won because it's hard to even score yours whether it was really amazing <laughs> or you should be disqualified. I don't even know where to begin. The believability scale, we can go back to that. I don't believe what you just said. So mine, I am going to serve a Hawaiian luau shapeshifter kind of thing. Going. Okay. Like a I pig think, roast? Yes, and I'm going to use the rakshasa from the Middle East because it has the tusks and it's this big hairy thing. We could put it on a spit. Uh, kind of boorish. Yes, and I'm going to have like a vegan choice. So I'm going to have a leshy as well, which is kind of a wood spirit. So it's going to be like wood and plant matter based. So plant based cryptid. Yeah. <laughs> Lush is more, you know. I'm <laughs> I I like that you're you're getting with the times and having the vegan option. Yeah. And I, I you'd be saying, how would I pull something like this off? You know, this is a Eastern Europe fleshy and you've got the middle eastern rakshasa i would say i'm going to ask pele the volcano volcano god to kind of i'm going to sacrifice a virgin the night before okay and then send out my jaeger meisters my hunters to go find these things and bring them back and i think once they're under pele's domain i think they can't harm us so are you going to roast them over a live volcano yeah sure that's brilliant i think that's the way to go. Yeah. And I'm pairing it with Kauai Island Brewing Company, which is, this is going to be in Kauai. I actually want to, I want to chopper people down to like the Nepali coast, like the Honkapayo yeah, Beach or yeah. something, and just Beautiful. fly in the creatures, fly in this beer from, you know, and it wasn't the best beer I've ever had, by the way. What, but what kind is it? You didn't finish Kauai Island beer. Brewing Company. I'm actually going to, one of everything they have, we're getting a keg. We're having a party Ooh, a on the beach. a beer. So there's going to be every keg that they have. They had good beer. I would say that. Mm. And See, I, I want to go to your party. I don't want to go to my party. So yeah. I'm pretty sure you just won that one hands down. <laughs> don't go My party's now. just for the cryptids, like yeah. the scary guys going to dinner. Yeah. They, they would like mine better, but I would rather go to yours. I think what you did is, was was deeply disturbing and deeply yet, and yet there was something to be said for what you came up with but mm. I'll, this I'll is take the, the monster lore tour it was a monstrous meal for the that monsters. was a monstrous meal um and you do deserve some credit for that and i usually lose so i guess i'll take the victory on this yeah one. you got me hands down on that one so all right that's all i got today but anywho until next week thank you everybody for coming giving us a listen 
check out our website at monsterloretour.com, our Patreon at patreon.com slash monsterloretour. And until next week, have a good one, listener. We got to practice our duets a little bit. Yeah, working on it, you know. The Donnie to my Marie. Oh, that's not on my list. Are you really stopping a podcast to write that down? I am. Shut up!